Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. All right, so chapter 3, we start on page 15 uh, of the book, the brothers Harry and Hill. And we also had chapter 4 of, like, with brothers like that, who needs enemies? And so as we open up these two chapters, we'll go to the Lord uh, in prayer, but as a quick refresher on, on where we're at, in case you read it at the beginning of, of this week or not had a chance to, to go through it, we get to walk through um, these two brothers of Esau and Jacob, Esau being the older, Jacob being the younger. And also we get to hear a little bit about their character, of how they develop and, and who they are. And so as we go to the Lord in prayer, you know, bear in mind the characteristics of these two brothers, that they're not exactly uh, whom most people would pick if they were the Lord God, but of course we are not, and he is. And so while we go to the scriptures, we see a bit of a revelation in terms of what God is doing with these two young men. What is it that he has in store, not only for them, but more importantly for the story of salvation, for the plan of redemption. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we come here before you on a new day. We come here giving thanks to you that you would hear our prayers, Lord. That as we read and learn about Esau and Jacob and their own sins, that you, O oh Lord, forgive us of our sins and that you see that we too are wayward like these two brothers. And yet in your grace, you use mere mortals like ourselves you use Jacob and Esau to your glory, to further your plans, to redeem this old world, to bring us closer to salvation, and to lay out the line, to plant the seed, what will eventually become our redemption through the blessings of Jesus Christ who's given to us through that line of Jacob, a plan that you've had from the beginning of time. We thank you and we praise you, O Lord, that you are gracious enough to use us sinners to glorify your name, and that though we fell, even in our failure, you use it to glorify your purpose, that you are a merciful and loving God. And to that, we give great thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So before we dive into like chapters three and four, I'm curious if there's any initial questions, any kind of initial thoughts on what you read, you know, anywhere from what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy, or... Any questions about something that you came across in these couple of chapters? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's interesting that the family dynamics yeah. is always really interesting. And, and the fact that, it, that this all began mm-hmm. in the womb. Yeah. And uh, going back to what we talked about last week about the fact that... Uh, you know, God knew us from before our mothers were. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm always reminded of uh, John the Baptist yeah. and, and Elizabeth and uh, uh, that passage where John jumped in the womb. Absolutely. Uh, <coughs> but it is interesting, I think, to, uh, you know, to take a look. And the names. Yep were something that was interesting to me. Yeah. What is it, What about the names, honey? Well, the names have meanings. Of course, and their meanings are? Yeah, well, and I'm going to segue into the next thing 
that I want to talk about, and that is that in, in Scripture, mm -hmm. it's important to recognize that names have meanings, but if, if we can, because I've shared this with you before, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. when you look in the Torah, from Adam to Noah, mm -hmm. each one of the names has a meaning, mm -hmm. and you, when you put them together, mm -hmm. it really has it sends a message to us about the fact mm -hmm. that in the Torah, the gospel was mm -hmm. proclaimed. Mm -hmm. Salvation was proclaimed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Adam, the name of Adam means man. Seth is appointed. Enoch is mortal. Uh, Kenan is sorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, Mahalel is the blessed God. Jared shall come down. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Uh, Lamech, the despairing. And Noah, rest or comfort. Man is appointed, mortal sorrow. But the blessed God comes down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest. And then we get to Harry and Hill, yeah. Esau and but Jacob. It's just, interesting. Just the names. They yeah, yeah. Just they, they have meaning. meaning. Yeah. And that's why I, I bring up, you know, Esau and Jacob, that it's interesting. You know, like Chad Bird makes the point that. A lot of, you know, people before they even get married will think about names for their children. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't think that Harry or Hill would be on that list. But here we are with, you know, Rebecca naming their children uh, based upon these circumstances, you know, of Esau coming out, you know, uh, is even from birth. Yeah. Well, um, his comment was he had a favorite, favorite name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in, oh, uh, in... Uh, biblical times, mm -hmm. they used the circumstances mm -hmm. to help drive the name. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. yeah, yeah. But it's definitely common to see that. But you'd also would see a lot of it being a revelation of "You shall name this child." You know, Jesus is a great example. You know, the angel reveals to Mary, "You'll name the child Jesus." You know, the other example of John before that. You know, yeah, you will name the child John. You know. And, uh, and then if it's not, you know, because God is saying who you'll be named, God will rename you. We see that with Abram and Sarai. We're going to see it with Jacob, you know, becoming Israel. So it's interesting, you know, seeing these circumstances and seeing what's happening here. Because as he pointed out, you know, in, in the language, you know, when it comes to calling Esau Harry, it's very much coming across with the same terminology used for being named for red, you know, for, for being a redhead, you know, that he, you know, this red hair that, that he has, you know, um, it's very overwhelming. And he makes this point that it really sounds like, you know, this, the source of the name for, for hair, um, which is also used for, uh, Sierra, which is going to become the homeland for Esau. The homeland is named for Esau, which makes sense. You know, it bears the same name. And so if we see that in an English translation, typically you'll see it say Esau, and then it says in the land of Sierra. And you don't necessarily make that connection, you know, but it's like it's the land of Esau uh, that he goes to, which makes sense that it's named for that. 
And then we hear about uh, Jacob coming after him. As a matter of fact, it's a battle for who's going to be first as he's gripping his brother, you know, from the womb, you know, by the hill, holding Esau's hill. And so we see that literally, like, within the womb, there's a battle for who's going to be first. Who's going to be a battle for who gets the first blessing? Who's going to be the one who's battling to have the first in line of, of God's, you know, blessings uh, throughout his covenant? And it's interesting that what we see here, he says it here on, on page 16, uh, about midway uh, on the page in the, in the middle of their chapter, he says something else is going on as well. And so he's talking about this boy being born who's holding on to Esau's hill, who is Jacob. Forms of the name Jacob or Jacob El are attested multiple times in other ancient languages besides Hebrew, all formed from the verb meaning protect. In these cases, the name means something like May El, El is the name for God, may God protect him, or God has protecting him. And that being said, in the Bible, the former meaning connected with hill dominates, but not in a positive way. That Hebrew word formed from the same root carries the connotation of grabbing someone by the hills so as to trip them up, to hinder them, or to betray them. And so it's very much this this revelation, this, uh, not really premonition, but this foretelling, this foreshadowing that Jacob is going to be tripping up his brother throughout his life, which is indeed what we see. And they're also a little bit uh, of a, he doesn't make this connection in the devotion here, but the connection of almost like Jacob is going after the hill, and the hill's got a negative connotation in Scripture. And as a matter of fact, if we go back to the Garden of Genesis, what is it that the serpent is going to do? Strike the hill of the one whom God is going to send to save. And so you see this like interesting dynamic of the one whom God is going to choose to carry out his line, to bring about the Messiah, who will crush the serpent, who will be stricken by the hill, is also a sinful man who is already striking at the hill of his brother. So you see that God is using the sinner in order to bring about our Savior, ultimately. It's a fascinating dynamic, a fascinating, not really paradox, but way that God uses you know, the sinful man in order to bring about um, his his needs, his plan, his revelation for mankind's salvation. And I like how Chad Bird talks about his own personal struggle with ambition. First, you know, being motivated, driven by ambition, that that was his goal in life. Like, yes, I'm going to be excellent at what I'm doing. And he was previously a pastor. Uh, he's been a professor. He's, he's back to being a professor again. But... He pointed out the, to this great line that, like, ambition does not grab hold of the hands of others to pull them up. Ambition grabs hold of the hills of the brothers, of the friends, and the strangers and the enemies to pull them back, really to pull them down. Get out of my way. I'm getting ahead of everyone else. And that really, you know, spoke to me in our culture especially, and to me personally, of, like, ambition of, like, oh, I want to be the best at what I do. I want to get, you know, like the best accolades and acclamations, you know, et cetera, you know, like, it, and it's the way that we, you know, as a culture drive ourselves, you know, for better or for worse, because certainly a healthy dose of wanting to do your vocation well, because we're all called to serve God in our vocations is good. But then when it turns into that idol of personal ambition of like, I desire to be on top, when it goes from, being the best servant of God where you're at, so you're having the ambition of Caesar and crossing the Rubicon, 
You see how something good is corrupted into something sinful and evil. And so I like how he points out in 1 Thessalonians. And actually, we, let's go there. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll pick up at verse 9. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. You get a volunteer to read verse 9 through 12. <coughs> 9 through 12? Yes. Uh, but as touching brotherly love, you need not uh, that I write you, uh, write unto you, uh, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Uh, and indeed, you do it towards all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, uh, that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly towards them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. So what would be the practical real-world life application? What Paul's saying here about living quietly, aspiring to help others, work with your hands, and to be able to walk properly with outsiders. It's really counterintuitive to the world of ambition. It's very much counterintuitive. It's yes. a humble uh, existence. It is, absolutely. Very humble. It's not about ambition yeah. or excellence or anything it's just doing the next thing that's mm -hmm. right and just keeping your head down mm -hmm. and serving the lord in that way there's no seeking of self-glory here or seeking yes of praise. exactly you know it's very counterintuitive and and i love this because like the <coughs> lord you know providentially plans things out so beautifully like this verse you know is cited by chad burden this section of the chapter and we're going to hear in today's sunday lectionary from a different letter of St. Paul, where he echoes this. And he goes a little bit longer into living a life which is quiet, which is humble, which is helping others, which is hard at work. And so aspects of that touches us as Americans. You know, like we very much are believing in hard work to the point where it's easy to become workaholics, where work is an end unto itself. And that ambition kind of creeps in of like, well, Paul says here, you know, I need to work hard, you know. You do. Whatever you're doing, you need to work hard because I want to be on top. I want to be the best. I want to be in charge. I want to be able to lead. And all of a sudden, it's like you're starting to creep over into this ambition. Like the call is for us to work hard, to live a quiet life, not one of controversy, of seeking, you know, self uh, aggrandizement, not, not really trying to, to find yourself, you know, in the middle of the next battle. You know, if we don't go out there and do XYZ and we get there on the front page and we raise a ruckus, no one else will listen to us. But there's a subversive way of Christian godly living. And it's not a, a meekness of like, just live quietly and just, you know, collapse your hands together and just do nothing when, when life happens. You know, don't, don't speak out when something evil is going on. No, this is the St. Paul who says that we're to speak out and call out evil when we see it. To stand firm, as he says many times in his letters, for the faith once delivered. But it's not one of like going after and chasing after windmills or creating some big obstacle for us to overcome. Instead, it's of a quiet, godly life 
And that's how this wild revolution of Christ's love, you know, works its way through the rest of the world. Because you see, like in Acts especially, as Paul, you know, and the other missionary disciples are going out, controversy finds them. But they never go in and, like, barge into the city councils, into the magistrates, you know, of this pagan nation that is the Roman Empire, you know, and, and just overturn tables there. The only overturning of tables is Christ Jesus, and we are not. And it's within the temple complex of his own people, of the religion that he's given them, the worship of the divine Yahweh, of God. And it's because there's been a perversion in the temple. But Paul and his companions and the missionaries, the disciples, they go out into all the nations, and they go to the Jew first, who have the revelation of God and preach Christ, and then they go to the Gentile, who do not know who Christ is. And, of course, that just raises... Literally, it, it raises hell, you know, raises Cain, because hell is coming against them as they're going out. So the, the trouble will find us, but we don't need to go out and find the trouble. Instead, it's live a quiet, godly life. That's hard enough, you know, especially today when we have things just being blared at us constantly. To live a quiet, peaceful life that's trying to follow after our Savior, to be a good disciple of Christ Jesus. And it's interesting that... It's an opposite of, of the ambition that we see really with, with Jacob. You know, from, from his very birth, we see this ambition of trying to pull Esau even back into the womb so that he can be first, which is very much what we see repeated throughout his life. And so we talked about, you actually made a good point here about the names, you know, these names and, and their meaning throughout the Testaments. And how old, they're all connected. New. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. you would... You know, on face value, it doesn't mm-hmm. look connected, but deeping, digging deeper, mm-hmm. and the meaning of the names and how they—that's th- that thread that you were talking about yeah. earlier. Mm-hmm. That thread that ties it all together, mm-hmm. and people think they're disconnected, and when they're not, yeah, they're not. The mm-hmm. whole Bible mm-hmm. it has a thread running mm-hmm. right through it. It does. And the beauty is that all that is right there in Genesis yeah. even. You know, like you see this like hidden thread, hidden in plain sight mm-hmm. of the meaning of names. Mm-hmm. You know, just mm-hmm. going through the first few chapters of Genesis, you know, showing this purpose of God. Yeah. I, I really like mm-hmm. this comment on page 19. Yeah, yeah. Right at the Which top. One? Our Father is far more than a heavenly hammer. Yeah. For whom everything on earth is it looks nice? like a nail. <laughs> That's true. It's very well said. He breaks you know? down and yeah. builds up. He shatters and shapes. Uh, he crucifies and resurrects. Uh-huh. I mean, I uh, because too often we think of a, you know the God of Judgment. I mean, uh-huh. that's what exactly. Yeah, and people, you know, especially with Old Testament, they just you know, think like it's you know God's just constantly it, seeking in, them in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, it's like what you have when you see you know uh-huh. you see. Uh, and I'll use this in my personal walk this week. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, here's this wood rot. Mm-hmm. The first thing you have to do is cut out all the all dead rot. wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And so, yeah. And it's a, a saw and a hammer, and mm-hmm. you're beating on stuff, and yeah. Uh, and that's the way God works. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, this is you, you break down to build up. Mm-hmm. And I, I really enjoyed that little comment. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's an excellent comment that he makes. And um, it's beautiful. Like, the only thing that I would add to what he says, of like, you know, it's, like I said, on the top of page 19, uh, for anyone who's also listening in, 
Our Father is far more a heavenly hammer for whom everything on earth looks like a knell. He breaks down and builds up. He shatters and shapes. He crucifies and resurrects. And it's a great point because people will typically, especially when they read the Old Testament, think, oh yeah, in the Old Testament, God you know, was just so angry and he's just after people. you know. And you can tell you're not really reading through the Old Testament because he's also the same God who reveals in the Old Testament, my mercy extends to the thousandth generation. And you see that continually. He's working with the people of Israel. And Jacob is going to be named Israel. We're going to hear about this soon. And he's not only the God who's not constantly a hammer seeking a nail, but if he is ever a God who's a hammer seeking a nail, he nails himself. He nails his son to that cross. And so, to take care of us. Yes, and there's very much, there is a law and there is consequences. Don't get me wrong. But God is revealed as a merciful God so that when the hammer comes down, it doesn't come down on us. It comes down upon the sun. And all of us who seek refuge and cling to him at the feet of the cross find refuge and are passed over through the blood of the Lamb, through Christ Jesus. But there is warning that this is the great day of the Lord, that at the end of days, at the judgment, when the resurrection occurs, there will be a judgment for those you know, who have not clung to you know, that blood of the Lamb, you know, who has died for us, whose blood from those nails you know, have purified us. Then it will very much feel like a hammer to those who are in the judgment, but the good news is that there is grace and grace abundantly for the whole world, you know, for all those who come to Christ, all those who seek him in faith and rest upon him. And, and we talk, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways we think negatively about the nail. Mm-hmm. What is a nail? A nail is a strong connector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it's used for. Mm-hmm. And and to the extent that God uses nails to us, it's to connect us to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm reminded of when mm-hmm. Jesus said, and, uh, you know, no one can take uh, these that the Father has given me mm-hmm. out of my hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, really is a... It's powerful. I mean, like... Uh, and Yeah, and it's strong. Absolutely. You know? It's a bond, you know, that's... That's so firm upon us. It's, and it's yeah. In face value, it sounds mm-hmm. like uh, you're you've done something wrong, and you're gonna be nailed. Mm-hmm. You know, he's mm-hmm. gonna bang it into your head mm-hmm. until you finally get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not really the case at all. Mm-hmm. He's in his grace and mercy. Mm-hmm. I think is the connection. Yeah, that we have, and it's amazing mm-hmm. if you read it a certain way and you ha- hear it a certain way, it sounds one way, but there's deeper understanding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the other. Yeah, you yeah. know that 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 there's the gentle side. Yes, you see the angry side in the Old Testament for, for sure, mm-hmm. but you see the grace and the mercy and the latitude. That the Lord gives you to come to Him. Yeah, that's yeah. all it is. Is a simple thing mm-hmm. about turning your head. It is and your heart, and it takes work because I know. I grew up in the church, mm-hmm. and then I got disillusioned for a while. Yeah, yeah. and it, t- it was about ten years, mm-hmm. and then I, I came of my own accord this time. Mm-hmm. And the Lord, and I, the Lord said, "You're home now." Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. to me inside my head, and I said, 
okay, mm-hmm. well, this is where I need to be, and this is where I'll raise my children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that was amazing that you get to see, but you've got to dig in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't just well, it's interesting sit on the surface. When it comes to, like, what we've received through Christ Jesus, we're always trying to cling and grasp and take, you know, like when you, if you realize that you're in need of a savior, we can't help but like want to take it and make it our own. And yet God the whole time is saying like, I'm giving you this gift, you know, like stop clutching and grasping for other things. As a matter of fact, the work that you need to do is let go of your hands and unfold them so that you can receive, receive, you know, like. And that's that trust, you know, that like mm-hmm. that Luther talks really strongly about, and rightfully so. And he's really drawing it off of Augustine, who's drawing it off of Paul, of that that trust in Christ is a release. And we talked about men's fellowship, you know, about uh, going through the Psalms, about seeking refuge in the Lord, about resting. You know, if you seek refuge, you found a place of shelter, you found a place of resting. And so that resting requires giving up, you know, like, like, if I have found a place of refuge, I'm not protecting myself. This place of refuge, you know, is where I seek my comfort. If I am, you know, seeking, you know, if I'm being chased and pursued, pursued by enemies, it's not until I find others to either protect me, you know, some army to fend off the enemies, you know, or even a common example of like, you know, if someone, you know, is, is breaking into my house, I call the police and they come and I found re- refuge and found protection from them coming and driving out the one who is trying to come after, you know, and trying to take me. I don't seek refuge if I'm, like, grabbing hold of things, you know, <laughs> in the house, you know, and saying, like, don't take this, don't take that, you know, like, I'm in a position of fear, I'm in a position of, you know, perhaps trying to seek my own, you know, salvation, and you got to disengage from the common example, of like, well, protect yourself, you know, with a firearm, you know, but think of it like, you know, you're there unarmed, you know, and someone is coming in after you, you know, there's one or two things you can do. You can stay there and try to resist and perhaps, you know, face oppression, face kidnapping, face, you know, like injury or even death. You can try to cling to what belongs, your possessions, and, and run and flee, you know, or you can call out for help. And so very much, you know, for us as humans, we have to get to a point of realizing, I need help. I can't do this on my own. Exactly. And the good thing is that it doesn't mean like, therefore I need to do the work of picking up the phone and calling and getting the police to come. God's there the whole time saying like, I'm here with you. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's been done on that cross. Your ransom has been paid. The one who is coming in cannot do anything to you. And Christ uses this example of like, if someone knows when you're going to be broken into, you're ready. (laughs) You're prepared for it. You know, you're not going to just sit back and just be, you know, ambivalent about it you know and just allow someone to come into your home you're prepared and you're ready and he also christ talks about coming into breaking into someone's house it says that you need to first bind up the strong man and the christ is like you know completely turned this image on his head saying you know what when it comes to me coming into this world me you know breaking into shale into hades i'm breaking into the world you know the light is breaking into the darkness and I bind up the strong man, referencing Satan, so he has no power 
Satan cannot resist, you know. And it's why when he leaves, or before he leaves, but he tells us this and then ascends into heaven, that the church, he says, will be advancing against the kingdom of darkness, against Satan. It will be gaining ground and that these gates of hell will not prevail. They will break down as the church, his body, storms and is able to spread. But it all, you have to rewind it. It all goes back to, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. We need to go and, and do good work. We need to do this stuff. We need to grasp. We got to build that firm it's, foundation. Yeah, the only way you build it is by stumbling across the stumbling block that is our own salvation. The cornerstone's been laid. It's Christ exactly. Jesus. All we can do is rest upon that cornerstone. You know, it's the hardest. It's easy to do now, right this minute, in present time. We're mm-hmm. in Sunday school. But when you try to do this on your own and when there's crisis in your life, mm-hmm. some type of crisis, like children in jeopardy, mm-hmm. uh, family members that are sick, really sick. I mean, not just pretend sick. And, you know, it's just hard Mm -hmm. to hold on to the Lord. And I have learned in my my life that praying is the most Mm -hmm. I can do. And we always want to do more. Mm -hmm. But I know that if I get quiet and I pray really hard, I have been blessed with outcomes that have been more than mm-hmm. I even thought I I would have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that has been, that is my faith. That is because the Lord has stood up for me mm-hmm. many, many times. You know, when my first marriage was dissolving and just all the stuff mm-hmm. that life brings you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ask for it? No, but it comes. Mm -hmm. And that has been where my faith comes, Mm -hmm. is that the Lord has been there for me. I know he's there with me. And he holds my hand through it all, and I'm boohooing like a baby. Mm -hmm. But you know what? It works. Mm -hmm. That's all. It just works. Well, there's examples. The the example of the prodigal son really bears us throughout his own life. The prodigal... You know, saying, you know, like, I'm rejecting you, Father. You know, like, just go ahead and give me, you know, what you owe me when you die. But go ahead and pay it to me now (laughs) while you're living. The audacity. Exactly. The audacity of it, you know. And, frankly, his ambition, his pride of, like, I can do better outside your household. Matter of fact, you know, you're as good as dead to me. Just pay me, you know, what I'm going to get as the, you know, inheritor of your will. And I'm going to go out on my own. And we see what happens. He squanders, you know, as a young man especially, on all the things that young men typically get themselves into trouble, falls into the sins of the world and finds himself broke, penniless. And there he is, you know, tending to, you know, the hogs, which are unclean animals, you know, under the Jewish law. And there he is, like, even envying what the pigs are eating because he's so desperately hungry. Clearly not even getting paid enough to really eat anything worthwhile. And then finally he gets the idea of, like, well, heck, the servants back home in my father's house have it a heck of a lot better than I do. I can at least go back there and I'll beg just to be a servant and not have to do this kind of work and not be fed and probably have little or no clothing and maybe not even have a head on it, uh, a uh, roof over his head. And then, of course, he, he makes that realization that it's better in my father's house 
the where I am on my own way and on my own path. And then he turns around, he repents, and starts walking back home. And the beauty of that is that it really aligns up with what Chad Bird is saying here, is that our God is far more than the heavenly hammer. He breaks down, and then he builds up. He allows that son to go and break himself down in his own sin, and then he builds him back up. He's been shattered because the law is there. The law, you know, condemns what he has done, and the sins are multiplying for him. But then God shapes he crucifies himself and resurrects us along with his son, Jesus Christ. And so for the prodigal, what we see here is that before he's even in the home, you know, in the palace complex of where this father lives, the father runs after him, which, if you're not aware, culturally, it's embarrassing. You would not have a father, you know, like run after the son. You know, today, you know, we see it a little bit more common of like, you know, kids run around, you know, like in... You run to the kid. But this is a grown man, you know, of a son, a grown man of a son. And the father, you know, in a very demeaning way for his culture and context, runs after the son, you know, kisses on him, loves on him, dotes on him, orders, clothes him, which is the reason why I think that he's probably in very tattered, it's certainly nasty clothes. I mean, he's in there working with the hogs in the slot, for crying out loud, and changes him, mm-hmm. you know, like he's been shattered. He clothes him. Which for us, you know, like as Christians, we should think about our baptism. Like we're given a white linen to pair, to put upon ourselves, you know, in our baptism. At least that's traditional, you know, or we bring a white, you know, piece of, of uh, clothing or cloth or something that represents Christ covering us up with his own righteousness. And this father, who of course is God the Father in this parable, is clothing this prodigal son you know, who's returning to his household with that grace and then of course celebrates you know rejoices afterwards but it's the yeah. other brother the other brother has the is problem. so resentful mm-hmm. and so upset mm-hmm. by the pro the son, mm-hmm. younger son coming mm-hmm. in and saying dad i've learned a very valuable lesson mm-hmm. and i guess i had to learn it the hard way you know and he he comes to the father, and the father embraces him. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, I told you so, mm-hmm. I told you, mm-hmm. he didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. The father just embraced him. Mm-hmm. And that made the other son, who had been dutiful, mm-hmm. made him so unhappy. Yeah. And if he had the right mind, mm-hmm. he would have been joyful as well. Exactly. Yeah. We see him, you know, very much in the way that we are in so often our own lives of, no, 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 I want justice, you know. I like, want justice. He needs or, just desserts. Yeah. I've been here the whole time. You either do it my way or it's the highway. But the irony is that, like, who's got the, the better heart? It's the sinner who's returning home. That's exactly right. Because he realizes that, like, my father was right. I'm going to go beg for forgiveness and ask to be a servant. He's not asking to come back as a son. There's no more ambition. He's lost it all. He just wants to come back and serve. He's got a lot of humility. A lot of humility. But then the brother who's been there the whole time, I mean, he's right, you know. Yeah, if we're honest with ourselves, if, you've, if you read the prodigal uh, son, you read that parable, at some point in your life, you've kind of been like, I mean, the older brother's kind of right, you know. Like, let's be honest with ourselves. Like, yeah. yeah, I stayed here the whole time. I've worked. I've slaved around and like that. Good I've nothing. been dutiful. I've yeah. been do- doing everything you said to do. But we talk about ambition. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The other brother was going to inherit exactly all. 
all of it. And so we I see mean, this. He, stood, he stayed there. Mm -hmm. you, you don't know what his personal motives were, but mm -hmm. he was going to inherit all. Yeah. And so what we see here is this older son who's now saying, you let the younger brother run off. You let him take half the inheritance. Here I've been the whole time. I've been so dutiful. And now you're going to celebrate. You're, you're going to have you know joy. What does that reveal about this brother's heart? He wants justice, but not mercy. That's right. But God is a God of mercy for those who turn to him, who repent. That's right. And the one who's got the filthy heart ends up being the older brother who never left. That's right. And when Jesus is saying this parable, he's saying it in the context of the Pharisees. It's quite clear that he's saying, like, you've always had the law. You're always doing, you know, like, things by the T. You've even, like, added on to the law to say, this is the way we do certain things to really be good Sabbath keepers and not Sabbath breakers. But you've completely missed the point that the law shows your sin and you need a new heart. And that was something that Jesus told Martha. Mm-hmm. When, when he comes to visit, he's like, yeah, he comes to visit yeah. and, and Mary is sitting at his feet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not doing you, a thing. Just he's chosen something. Better. The good portion, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's not to knock down service in that context even. Yeah. But it's the point of like, I've come here and I'm revealing to you the very words of the Father. It has to be me. your heart. It's a heart issue. Yeah. It's a heart. Mm -hmm. It ha and, and the Lord works trying to refine mm -hmm. our hearts, trying to get us to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Mm -hmm. He keeps trying to work with us and yes. work with, and he's relentless mm -hmm. in that. And yes. that is a blessing to me because it's a hard head. We all, yes, we're all hard headed. And that's how we reveal, you know, a stiff necked generation is the way it's used in scripture about the, the people in the Exodus, the Israelites coming out. A stiff necked, you know, we'd say hard headed, you know very stubborn in our ways. And this kind of bleeds into chapter four now. And I think that Lewis, or excuse me, Bird makes a good point of drawing from C.S. Lewis's essay, talking about the sermon and the lunch, about how a, a, a vicar, a rector, a priest is giving a sermon and is talking about the ideal home life and people are tuning out mm -hmm. because they're like, that's yeah. not how it is at home. That's not realistic. And in his essay, I looked it up after reading the chapter because I hadn't read that one before. And it's quite humorous, as Lewis can always put something oh, that he, everyone's like tuning out and thinking about. They know this vicar and they know his home life. <laughs> and they're like, you're describing a heavenly home life, not an earthly one, of where we struggle and where we have some of our greatest battles with one another is in the home life, not with a stranger. And I think we've all seen it before. We've all known somebody either within our family or friends, you know, within their family life. And we see they act to the stranger so much more kindly than they act to their own spouse, child, insert whoever it is within their own family. And that really is convicting of our own sinfulness. And so he brings this out, Chad Bird does, in order to walk us through Jacob and walk through uh, Esau. And he makes the point that when it comes to uh, the two boys, that Esau is a skillful hunter, he's a man of the field, you know, while Jacob is a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And so we see very much this kind of, I think he refers to as an outdoor, uh, rugged outdoorsman for Esau, which is very much the image that I get as well from reading the scriptures, reading Genesis on this. But then when it comes to Jacob, who's mentioned for being dwelling in tents, it gives this implication that Bird does a great job of drawing out because it's not just spelled out. It's saying he dwells in tents, which culturally people understand is he's a shepherd. You know, he's got to be on the move 
with the flock, you know, as they're tending out, you know, feeding on different lands. So you got to bring tents with you, you know, to, to be with the flock, to protect the flock. And the same term, this Hebrew term for the quiet man, is used twice, he points out, in the book of Job, when Job is described as an upright man. And I think it's interesting, this, this quietness is paralleled with uprightness, which should also inform our understanding of Paul <coughs> talking about living a quiet, godly life, of, of not seeking out our own glory. And the bottom line that we hear in this part of Genesis, going through Genesis 26 through 27, is that Rebekah, you know, is preferring the younger son, you know, preferring Jacob. And then Isaac is preferring the man's man, preferring Esau. And we start to see that this is going to lead to some family conflict, which should be all too familiar for so many of us in our own families. We're at least some people that we know and who we've experienced and been friends with or just known in our life. And so the next scene that we go to with, with Jacob and Esau is really interesting because it shows what Chad Bird calls a mixed up of priorities, which I think speaks really well to today's culture. Having our priorities mixed up is so common for us, especially when it comes to serving the Lord versus being so devoted to ambition or vocation or just something else that becomes an idol in our life. And so he points out that Esau, you know, as we typically know from Sunday school classes as kids, sells his birthright just for a bit of stew. And it really shows that when you read it at first, you think, like, this is kind of a wild story. You know, like, why would he do this? But it shows that Esau just really doesn't care about his birthright. He doesn't take it seriously at all. So when his brother, you know, you know, trying to deceive him and pull a fast one on him, you know, it's not really pulling a fast one. He's just like, look, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you some of this too. And Esau, I love how he, he uh, quotes it, you know, literally. Like, Esau's like, I'm about to die, you know, give me some of this soup. And the way it's on page 23 that literally he says, let me gulp down this red, this red, you know, meaning the stew, the stew being red. And also interesting because his name, you know, like bearing this red, you know, ginger hair as well. And the gulping down, you know, it even sounds like when you hear gulp down. And the original word in Hebrew is implying that it's an animal eating. That Esau is almost like devolved, you know, from being a human, from being an Adam, you know. But instead of like devolving into the animal state... It's a common theme in Genesis. As you see humanity's progression, eh, it's not really progressing anywhere. It's degressing. That we're continually going at war with each other, of trying to cheat one another, and really devolving into survival of the fittest, of like the animal world, more than like we're image bearers of God. And so it's real interesting. I love how Chad Bird does this. He pulls it out. Like It doesn't say the word stew. It doesn't say the word soup. We translate that because if we just translate it literally, give me the red, the red, you know, we'd be scratching our heads like, what is he talking about? And he's making the point, it's, it's the stew he's talking about, the color of the stew. Uh, and he's just so desperate uh, for this. And so that explains why if you've ever read the story in Genesis, it just says, you know, like, he wants this stew, I'll sell my birthright for it. And then verse uh, 24 in chapter 25, it says, thus Esau despised his birthright. And you may think like, I don't know if he despised it. I think he was just really hungry. No, he, he despises it because he thinks so little of this birthright. But it's not as though Jacob is completely innocent. Jabber does a good job of, of walking through and, and showing that Jacob is, he even says it like this, Jacob is acting as an ice-cold lawyer. And as an attorney, I would agree the way he goes about this. 
I'll quote it. He immediately, Jacob does, seizes upon the, or excuse me, sizes up the situation and goes for the jugular with legal precision, even saving the word me for the last word in the sentence, sell your birthright to me. And I like how he says it. No, hey, brother, you look famished. Here, eat a bowl of soup. Rest and eat up. There's no fraternity, no compassion, as Chad Bird says. No brotherly love to help a human being. And what do we read, like, in 1 Thessalonians just a, a moment ago of, like, of having brotherly love, you know? Like, it's the opposite of this relationship between Jacob and Esau. Absolutely. It's very much this hostility. And it's very much, you know, an opportunity there. Jacob seizes upon it to, to get this birthright sold it. And we're going to see later on, this advances past this chapter and later on in Genesis, that the birthright isn't completely gone because we're going to see, you know, preview, and probably most people have heard this before, is that what you see with Isaac is Isaac at his deathbed is one of giving a blessing, you know, of the birthright. And there's going to be, once again, deception <laughs> happening um, with Jacob. And this time with his mom, Rebecca, you know, helping out uh, as well. But we won't get... That well, far, yeah. It, 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 it's interesting because if you mm -hmm. read the last line there mm -hmm. of chapter, or of, uh, of 25. 30, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2530. Uh, Therefore was his name called Edom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, do you remember what Edom did when the Israelites were uh, attacked? Mm -hmm. You know, and they... They, they didn't have much compassion yeah, either. There was no raising of hands of "Let's go forth." Yeah. Yeah. When you know, kill their children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, and I, you know, that struggle mm -hmm. that we're reading about now continues to this day. Mm -hmm. That struggle between them, and you know, God set all this up. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, we see the. Palestinians and the uh, literally, mm. you know, uh, maybe not brothers, but distant cousins of, yeah, yeah. of, of uh, uh, the Jews mm -hmm. at one another's throat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't go away. Yeah, and uh, yeah. what a message that is to us. I mean, mm -hmm. until we give up mm -hmm. and forgive, we won't have peace. Yeah, no. No, it's a, it's a question of giving up our claims, you know, like, right. I want my claims, I want my rights. It goes back to that brother of the prodigal son, like, I want justice. That's you right. Know? It's like, but you need mercy. <laughs> you don't even know what you need. You know, you're like the, the patient who's Googled, you know, or gone on WebMD and said, like, what I need is this. And the doctor is like, well, that'll treat your symptoms, but your real ailment is sin. And what you really need is a savior. But sure, knock yourself out by pleasing yourself with idols and feel better for a little bit of time. And then you'll end up like King Solomon, realizing this is a bunch of vapor and vanity. It's just meaningless. It's not fulfilling anything. It's not making me whole. If anything, it's actually deforming me even more. I'll become even more like Esau. You know, give me the red, the red. You know, give me the stew, the stew. You know, satisfy me in the moment. I'm about to die. You know? And we all know when we read that, like, that's not accurate. And we've all heard it. Goodness, we've said it as teenagers, and we've heard it from teenagers. I'm about to die. I need something to eat. I need some water. You know, like I can't make it. You know, a moment more. You know? And so, it, it's interesting because we see, sadly, this breakdown within family dynamics constantly. 
I'm not just talking about the big things, uh, you know, like divorce, you know, splitting of families, but also just how families treat one another, of uncharity and of meanness, as Chad Bird puts it. And we also see the best in the humanity with the closest around us and the worst in humanity who are around us. And what, what that should tell us is that there is great sin that permeates through each one of our hearts. And one of the hardest things to do every morning is to wake up, you know, sometimes that's the hardest thing to do is to wake up if we're honest with ourselves, but then to start that day with prayer to God, you know, asking for His grace, His provision, and not to just immediately backbite, you know, those whom we love, and who are the closest. And I'm preaching to the choir, you know. We've, we've all been through a stage, you know, in this room of, like, raising children, getting them out of school, you know, getting them to work, you know, and it can really quickly devolve into yelling and gnashing of teeth, you know. Like, yeah. But that's not the call, you know. That's like, right. Like, we got to die to ourselves. And it's a lot easier to remember that if we start off by speaking to the Lord and asking, Lord, give me the grace. Because you know how I am. You know I'm not a morning person, Lord. You know, like, you know I need help. And it's not just the caffeine I need. I need you. Mm-hmm. I need to rely on you. And it just it changes the way we think, at least the way we start the day. We remind ourselves we deserve the cross, I, but we I, need the cross in order to live faithfully. Yeah. I have done that faithfully for about three days, mm-hmm. and then I forget I did, was to do it. And it's, you know, it just yeah. makes me yeah. angry at myself because <laughs> yeah. I was determined. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to laugh at you; I laugh with you because yes, I, I know I, that feeling. You know, I, like, you yeah. know and yeah. I try. Yeah. I try so hard. I used to be very faithful yeah. prayer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now it's more uh, event prayer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I get a text. I put my te- hand over my text, and I say, you know, Lord, you know what this person needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's it, mm-hmm. you know. But you know what? I don't need a long, flowery prayer. All yeah. I need is the words to say. Mm-hmm. Being faithful in prayer is like it's half the battle. You know, yeah. The words come you know, because the Spirit's praying within us. Thanks be to God because we don't have the words so many times. Or we end up repeating ourselves 500 times like, I'm not even speaking. And I'm speaking to you, Lord. But if I spoke to anyone else like I'm speaking to you now, they just look at me like, All right, I hear you. You know, like stop repeating yourself 500 times. But it's good. It's good that God hears our mumblings, you know. And if we're honest, we're like babes who are just babbling. Yes. But start babbling. we got to start somewhere, so start babbling. And I encourage, like, to develop habits of holiness. For myself, you know, just speaking out of honesty, I have to literally trip over, you know, like, my prayer book, you know, like, <laughs> trip over my Bible. Put it where, like, it's there, and I can't get away from it. So you start that day. And it's not always successful because we're not perfect. But setting ourselves up for that success, you know, we do this in anything else in life. I gotta make a flight. I gotta make an appointment. I can't miss this or that. I'll set four or five alarms so I wake up on time. But then, for some crazy reason, sin, we don't want to do the same with being faithful, you know, prayer warriors, starting our day, ending our day in prayer, praying throughout the day, reading our scripture. And so, we have to trap the old man. We have to make sure that a sinful Adam within each one of us. Trump stumbles, you know, and I encourage, you know, like sometimes we've got to be ridiculous about, you know, getting ourselves to do what we know we need to do. And I think we've all done that at some point. We've had an appointment. We've had to go somewhere for work, you know, take some kids to, to church or school or whatever. And it's like, I'm going to lay this out, you know, 
so that way I know that I can just get up, just get it into it and boogie on down the road, you know, like jump into my outfit, you know, like have the snacks prepared for the kids, have the lunch prepared, make sure that I'm not missing anything. But then we don't do that when it comes to our relationship with God. And I don't say that to beat us down, but just to encourage us, like, just do the same thing. <laughs> Sometimes we have to set traps, you know, for the old man within one of each one of us so that we may actually be faithful in praying to the Lord, seeking his counsel and diving into uh, his word. And this kind of ties into a question that he has, question three on page 25 of the book. <coughs> what were the motivations of both Esau and Jacob over the matter of the birthright? So given the modern examples of how these same motivations and kinds of sins still occur, which of the Ten Commandments address this? And so the, the motivations of each one, of, of Esau, just being careless, you know, being very slothful about his birthright, his vocation. And then you have Jacob, who's being very ambitious and prideful and desiring to take that which is not his. There's a lot of covetousness, you know, that I, I hear in there. Um, you love thy neighbor as thyself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. That's the first one. And it's very much showing, you know, the nature that we, we treat each other. Well, coveting. Yeah, that's coveting. coveting. Absolutely. A ton of coveting coming from, from Jacob. Absolutely. Honor your father and mother. Exactly. Honor your father and mother. You know? It's not your birthright to, to take or to choose what to do with, you know, the I father know. and mother. And that's that. just... His, if his heart had been in the right place, he would say, oh, don't be silly. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the soup. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. but that did not occur. Yeah. He it, jumped like on the opportunity. Yeah. The first response, you know, is like, some of you was right, you know. That's when soul. you go to your knees <laughs> and you repent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Believe me, I know that too well. I'm always doing that. And it... We talked about it briefly, but like, <coughs> it's painful you know, to forgive others, if we're honest. Oh, some, yes. Some things in life, you know, certainly small oversights. But I'm talking about when someone's really slighted you and sinned it's, against you. It, sometimes I, you know, it's very hard for me to forgive. It can be very difficult to do so. It might take me a very long time, but I keep praying about it. Yeah. Lord, I really want to forgive this person. I really want Yeah. And, and you help. know, I hold on to that anger, that grudge. Yeah. And if I don't, you know, it takes a while for me to, to, to forgive anyone. Well, let's go to Matthew 18 as we wrap up here in regards to forgiveness. So Matthew 18, verse 21. <coughs> and I'll read over this for us. So eighteen twenty one, uh, and we'll read through uh, 35 here. So Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, which he, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's radical and powerful forgiveness. Oh, yeah! Because what we see in this parable is not just, I forgave you a hundred bucks, go forgive a hundred bucks for someone else, but I forgave you an impossible debt that you could not pay. We translate that into modern currency. This servant who's talking to his master could not have her paid him. Very unlikely. There's no lotto for him to go strike strike it rich, you know, and, and pay it off. And then he turns around and for a few thousand bucks has no patience whatsoever for this other servant. Immediately throws him into debtor's prison to make him pay it all off. And of course, wrath comes. Originally, the justice that was owed to this master would have been pay me back. You can't pay me back. I'm selling everything, even you as slaves and your whole family, to make payment. That's the original justice, but the master has mercy. And then the servant refuses to have mercy on a much smaller scale. And then wrath comes upon that original servant who was forgiven much, but will not go out and forgive either. And it really lays out for us, you know, Esau and Jacob have a lot to forgive one another over. And we're going to walk through that in both of their lives of seeing what happens with these two men. But the call to us, we know that what the call is for us living our own lives is that we are called to forgive. It's a difficult thing to do in many instances in our life, and it takes a new heart. And so we go back to what we talked about before, prayer. Praying for the Lord to give us that new heart so we may forgive. So we are well past our time, so we'll close out here in prayer. And if we have any questions, we can dive into those. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of your holy word. We thank you so much for laying out this, this life of both Jacob and Esau, where we're seeing so much of how you use us, Lord, in order to accomplish your will, and that it's messy and it is dirty at times. And there's a calling that is higher than us that we are to lean into, but we cannot do it without you and your grace. We ask you to pour out that grace abundantly upon us through the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining us on the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. We hope that you'd visit us in person. We have Sunday worship uh, every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. And you can visit us on our website at www.goodshepherdacna.com or visit us on Facebook at Good Shepherd ACNA. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. It not only makes us feel better, but more importantly, it helps those who are searching for Anglican podcasts find podcasts like this one and other ones that are out there on the web. Thank you, God bless, and have a good one. The Lord be with you, and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do.